Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the Content Manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the Book of Numbers with James Jordan, and here Jordan is going to be discussing the first eight chapters of the Book of Numbers in a talk titled, The New Model Army. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the Book of Numbers. The New Model Army. This is our first lecture in actual exposition of the book of Numbers, and so let's plow right in and look at chapters 1 and 2, which concern the warriors in God's army. We read that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month of the second year after they had come out from the land of Egypt. If you look at your chronological chart in your syllabus, you'll see that several things have already happened by this time. The first month of the year is taken up with the book of Leviticus and the events there, and also the gifts that are given in Numbers chapter 7. And when we get to Numbers 7, we'll be backing up chronologically. But now we come to the first day of the second month, and it's at this time that they are told to take a census of the congregation of the sons of Israel, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. I'd like to make a note here that the age of 20 seems to be the biblical age of citizenship. Citizenship is connected, obviously, here with being able to go out and fight, and that's the case in almost every nation anyway. So neither 18 nor 21, but 20 is the biblical age. And even if in our political order we can't maintain that, it could be done in the church. Children can be permitted to come to the Lord's table at an early age. I believe they should be there from the time of baptism on, but most churches will allow them, at least when they're teenagers, to come to the Lord's table. But it's always a problem that as soon as a child professes faith in the church and is baptized or permitted to come to the Lord's table, he suddenly becomes a voting member. But if we were to use biblical wisdom here, we could put the age of voting in the church at the age of 20. In the Old Testament, of course, it was only males. In the New Testament, that's extended to females as well. Now, we are also told here in verses 4 and 5 and following that there is to be one man from each tribe who is to be the head of the tribe and assist in the census. These are the people who had just finished bringing the offerings in the first month, as we'll see when we get to number 7. And these are the actual captains of the tribes. Now, there is in your syllabus a chart that shows the order of the tribes as they are found here in Numbers 1. They're found twice there. They're found in Numbers 2, Numbers 7, and Numbers 26. And there are slight differences among the orders of the tribes, but they're generally arranged by the wives of Jacob. And if you're interested in studying it out, you'll find it there. The order pretty much corresponds each time with certain exceptions. But the information that gives you some insight as to why the men are listed the way they are is to be found on that chart. At any rate, here in verses 5 to 15, we have the heads of the households and the heads of the tribes who are the leaders of the divisions or thousands 
or tribes of Israel. And so it says in verse 18, that they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month, and they registered by ancestry in their families by the father's households, and counted them from 20 years old and upward, just as the Lord had commanded. Then throughout the rest of chapter 1, we have this census. And the numbers here are interesting and controversial. Liberal scholars have generally maintained that the numbers here are too large. There could not possibly have been this many people coming out of Egypt at the time. We don't have any particular reason to defend that notion. As evangelicals, we can take the numbers as they are and assume that there were indeed this many people. And that will be my assumption. A striking commentary on these numbers has been provided by a French scholar named Barnouin, and in your notebook you have a bibliographical reference to Barnouin's work. He maintains that the numbers here, when paired up, correspond with astral cycles. The number of days in the year, solar year, the number of days in the lunar year, the number of days in the quarter year, which is 91, the number of days it takes for Saturn to move across the sky and come back to its original place, or the planet Mercury. These are all astral cycles that were known in the ancient world, and these numbers here correspond with those astral cycles. To explain his thesis here on the tape would take way too much time because it's complicated, but it's fairly convincing, certainly striking. In Genesis chapter 5, many of these same numbers turn up. The most familiar, of course, is the number of years that Enoch lived, 365, which of course is the number of days in a year. If Barnawin is correct, and it certainly seems to me that he has his finger on something important, and that's the way it seemed to recent commentators also who have read his material, then we have an indication here of Israel as a heavenly host. And this should not be particularly surprising to us that the numbers here have an astral significance We might be surprised to find that out, but once we do find it out, it's not surprising in terms of biblical theology. The Bible refers to the stars and the moon and the sun as God's heavenly host in places like Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. We know that the tabernacle, which was centered in Israel, is an image of God's heavenly dwelling, according to the book of Hebrews. It's a copy of things in the heavens, and if that's the case, then it's entirely likely that Israel grouped around the tabernacle is like God's heavenly host. In Genesis 37, verse 9, Joseph's dream said that he saw his brothers like the stars, possibly the twelve constellations of the heaven, and his mother and father like the sun and the moon. And of course, Abraham had been told in Genesis 15, verse 5, that his descendants would be like the stars of the heavens. So this could easily be one fulfillment of that, We'll see another way in which it's fulfilled in a minute, but this could be one fulfillment of it here found in the numbers of the census. Well, we don't have time to go into that in detail, but it's worth pointing out. When we get to verses 47 to 54, we have a notice about the Levites. The Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe, for the Lord has spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number nor take their census, or sum, among the sons of Israel. But you will appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over its furnishings and over all that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. 
In other words, the idea is carrying it. The idea is being on the march. They will take care of it. They will camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levite shall take it down. When the tabernacle encamps, the Levite shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. The sons of Israel shall camp each man by his own camp, each man by his own standard according to the armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle so that no wrath on the congregation comes upon the sons of Israel. We see a couple of things here. One of the Levites were the guards of the tabernacle, which was in the midst of the congregation. The nation of Israel would go on the march to extend the kingdom. But the Levites would remain at home, so to speak, and guard the home front. They would guard the church. And this is a principle, of course, that's been found throughout Christian societies, that the clergy are not conscripted and not asked to fight in war. That's not to say they can't, but they are not conscripted for that purpose. They're not drafted. They're not enrolled in a military census. And we see also here a principle that a home guard is essential, that in wartime it's particularly important that the faith be preserved, that the ministers of the gospel guard the faith, guard the families at home by protecting the holiness of God, and when the army goes out to march, that the chaplains go with them to maintain the holiness of God and to prevent the kinds of sins that can so easily come up in wartime. The Levites then, as the clergy in Israel, were set aside and not numbered with the army and not enrolled in the army. When we come to Numbers chapter 2, still talking about the warriors, we find that the sons of Israel are to camp, each by his own standard with the banners of their father's household, and they will camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. They're to maintain a distance from the tent of meeting, and this is, of course, designed to protect them from God's holiness so that they don't transgress. It says in Joshua 3, verse 4, there will be between you and the tabernacle a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it. All right. So just as the mountain of Sinai was holy and was not to be touched, so they were to keep a distance from the tabernacle and not be presumptuous. The tabernacle could only be approached through the tribe of Judah. We see this in verse 3. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and by the leaders of the sons of Judah, nation, the son of Amenadam. And then we have the census of the tribe of Judah, the numbers there, and then we have the description of how the army camp is to be set up around the tabernacle. And there's a diagram of that in your syllabus again, the diagram called the cherubic host. We'll turn to that. You see in the middle of the camp is the tent of meeting, and gathered around it are the Levites as guards. On the east side are the Aaronic priests, and the only way to get into the doorway of the tent of meeting was to go through the camp of the priests. But since the Israelites were not supposed to approach it within 2,000 feet, they pretty much had to go into the territory of Judah before they came to the Aaronic priests. And that was because Judah was the royal tribe, and only through the tribe of Judah would the Messiah come. Well, the Levitical clans of Merari, Merari, however that's pronounced, Gershon, and Kohath, 
guarded the other three sides of the tent of meeting when it was set up. And then arranged around the camp very carefully were the four armies of Israel, the armies of Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. The tribe of Judah was the captain of the eastern army. The tribe of Dan was the captain of the northern army, as you can see, and so forth. And then the other tribes were arranged with them. The Reuben and Dan tribes in the north and south are the Leah tribes, and the Judah and Ephraim tribes on the east and west are the Rachel tribes. I've noted here the words lion, man, bull, and eagle, because these are the four faces of the cherubim, and they correspond to these preeminent tribes. Judah, of course, the lion of Judah is familiar. Reuben as the unstable man, unstable as water. Ephraim is associated with the bull, and Dan with the eagle in prophetic passages. And so we have an image here of the cherubim guarding the throne of God. And just as in Ezekiel, God moves around in his chariot with the cherubim with the four faces facing the four ways, so here God moves around on the earth in the tabernacle, again flanked by these four cherubic faces. And here again we have an image of the heavenly host. It's been a tradition in the church to connect these with the four major signs of the zodiac. There's no reason not to do that. The book of Job and other places in the Bible refer to the constellations of the heavens in neutral terms, in other words, as if there's nothing wrong with them as symbols. The book of Revelation seems to do the same, speaking of these things. And the sign of Judah would be the lion or Leo. And then around the year, we would find Aquarius, the water bearer, which is the man sign. And again, connecting with water brings us to mind Reuben. Ephraim, the bull face, connects with the sign Taurus. And Dan, the eagle, connects with Scorpio, the scorpion, which many scholars believe was once an eagle and possibly is referred to in the book of Revelation when it talks about the eagle flying in the heaven. Your notes refer you to Chilton's Days of Vengeance for more information on this. And that book can be consulted for more information about the signs of the Zodiac, particularly in the book of Revelation. Well, this is the army, the first part of the army at least, the warriors and their constitution and their work of flanking the throne of God and their numbering and arranging as the people get ready to go and conquer the land. We come secondly to the Levites. In chapters 3 and 4, we have the creation of the Levites, the duties of the Levites, and the census of the Levites. Chapter 3 gives us the creation of the Levites. We can start in verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses, when the Lord spoke with Moses at Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Then we're told about how Nadab and Abihu sinned and died, and Eleazar and Ithamar took their place. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him, that they may keep guard before him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, to do the heavy work of the tabernacle. They shall also guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, along with the duties of the sons of Israel, to do the heavy work of the tabernacle. And you shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him. All right? So... 
The Levites are given to serve and assist Aaron with the tabernacle. And that will be their duty. Spiritually speaking, that means that once the Israelites come into the land, they will be the pastors of the local churches, the local synagogues that met every Sabbath day and on the new moons. And they will also maintain the Levitical cities. And from time to time, they'll go and serve the tabernacle as well. But in a more general way, they will guard God's holiness and keep his throne maintained by their duty of teaching and preaching throughout the land. In the wilderness, however, they didn't have so much of that to do, and they primarily carried around the furniture of the tabernacle from place to place. In verses 11 to 13, we find the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have given the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of, as a substitute for every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day I struck down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I set aside to myself the firstborn of Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. Now what does this mean? Well, under the patriarchal system, the firstborn son assisted the father as the household priest. This is all changing now. We have a new heavens and a new earth being inaugurated. The old one was broken down as being restructured. The fathers of the household will no longer be the priests, and the firstborn will no longer be their assistants. Rather, Aaron will be the priest, and the Levites will be his assistants. This is set out by tribes instead of by individual families. We no longer have individual family altars here and there. We have one central sanctuary that's been set up as a heaven model, something that didn't exist before. God says that at Passover, when he spared the firstborn of Israel, they became his. However, at the golden calf, these firstborn failed in their duties. They failed to guard God's holiness, and instead they insisted on the golden calf and apostatized. The people who stepped forward to defend God's holiness were the tribe of Levi. And on that occasion, in Exodus chapter 32, God said that the Levites would be his special priests and servants from that day forward. And so, because of what happened on that occasion, because the Levites showed themselves true guardians and the firstborn failed, now the Levites will be substituted for the firstborn. And that will have to be done head by head. We're talking here about the creation of the Levites. And in verses 14 to 39, we have the duties that they are going to perform as they're counted up. So we have the numbering of every single male child from one month old and upward, and we also have their duties. The first duties listed in verses 21 and following are those of Gershon, and that involved the tent of meeting. The Gershonites, when the tabernacle was taken down, carried the tabernacle and the tent, that is the cloth, its coverings, the blue curtain and the badger skin or porpoise skin covering that was over it, the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the doorway of the court, and all of its cords. In other words, everything made of cloth was carried by the Gershonites, and they put them on carts and took them from place to place wherever the cloud directed them. Then we have the family of Kohath, and their duties involved the actual furniture, carrying the furniture of the tabernacle. They carried the ark, Verse 31, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars. There were two of them, remember, the golden altar and the brazen altar. Along with the utensils of the sanctuary with which they minister. 
and the screen and all the service concerning them. So they carried the items that were inside the tabernacle, and we'll get more rules about that later on. Finally, there was Merari, I'll just say it that way, and they carried the wooden and metal pieces of the tent and of the outer fence around the tent. The frames of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, all of its equipment, and the pillars around the court with their sockets and their pegs and their cords. So they carried the outer structure. And these were the divisions among these three groups of Levites and what they carried from place to place. Now, once they were counted up, they found that there were 22,000 of them. In verse 40, the Lord said to Moses, Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old and upward, and to make a list of their names. And the total of them came to 22,273, which left 273 over. And so that substitution took place according to the following verses. Verse 45, take the Levites instead of the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites. And the Levites shall be mine. And for the ransom of the 273 who are left over, you will take five shekels apiece. 273 is another one of these astral numbers. It's three times 91, and it's three quarters of a year. This would have been a common number in the ancient world, and again pointed to a heavenly task. Similarly, in verse 50, these 273 were ransomed with five shekels apiece, and the total amount of money, ransom money that came for these extra firstborn was 1,365. So we've got 1,000. Then we've got 365. These numbers would have jumped out at people in the ancient world in the way that they don't at us because we don't live by almanacs and calendars the way they did. So, this is the way in which the Levites were created. Now, we come in chapter 4 to the duties of the Levites. They're spelled out a little bit more detail and a census of them. Not all these Levites from one month old and upward were going to work. Only those who were between 30 and 50 were going to work as part of God's heavenly host. In chapter 4, we read, verse 2, take a census of the sons of Kohath from 30 years old upward even to 50 years, all who do the service in the tent of meeting. And then it describes what the Kohathites do and so forth. We can comment on the fact that 30 years of age seems to be the age of ordination. Not only here, but we're told explicitly that Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, that David was 30 years old when he became king, and that Jesus was 30 years old when he entered into his ministry. And I think we're on very, very solid ground to say that no man should be ordained an elder or pastor in the church who has not reached the age of 30. Now, these retired at the age of 50, and that's probably for practical reasons, because at that point they were no longer able physically to carry around this heavy furniture and to do the heavy work involved. There have been those who felt that ministers should retire at the age of 50 and go into a more advisory capacity, but I'm not quite sure how that would work and function in the church. At any rate, the age of ordination at 30 is fairly clearly established in the scriptures. Now, the duties we have already seen, what the various groups carry. The Kohathites are mentioned first. 
they carry the most important stuff. They carried the ark. They carried the table of showbread. They carried the golden altar and the other pieces. What's interesting here in chapter 4 is that they're told to cover each one. There's a covering of blue and a covering of porpoise skin over each one of these items, which makes them like little miniature tabernacles. For one thing, it prevented the people from seeing them, which they were not allowed to do because in the Old Testament people were excluded from the heavenly tabernacle. But it also meant that each one of these little things as they moved through the wilderness was itself a miniature tabernacle, part of heaven on earth. They are specifically warned not to go in themselves to get these items. It's the priests alone who are allowed to go into the tabernacle and put these cloths over these items and then bring them out. And then the sons of Kohath would carry them. Warning is specifically given in verses 18 and 19. Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites. Do this for them, that they may live and not die. Aaron and his son shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment lest they die. So everything's got to be supervised by Aaron, and the priests themselves are the ones who've got to pack it up. Then the Kohathites will carry it. Well, then we have the Gershonites, and we're told again that they will carry the cloth items, and then we have the Moralites, and we're told again that they will carry the wooden pillars and metal pegs and rods. So we have a census then at the end of the chapter here of all those who are between 30 and 50, and we come up with 8,580 men who will do this work of carrying the tabernacle from place to place with the army. Well, we've looked at two aspects of this new model army. We've seen the warriors. We've seen the Levites. Now that we've got the Levites and the priests organized and established with their duties, we now have to give them certain jobs to do to make sure that the army camp remains pure and clean. The camp has got to be cleansed to make sure that it's a clean, new model army. It's got to be a model army, and it's part of God's new creation. It's got to be a holy army, just like God's throne is holy. And so, in chapters 5 and 6, we have five duties connected with the priests and the Levites having to do with keeping the camp cleansed. Five rules for cleansing the camp, and they're summarized here, and they're particularly interesting to us as we consider Israel as the army of the Lord. First of all, they're told in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, to eliminate three basic types of uncleanness from the camp. They're told to send away every leper, everyone having a discharge, and everyone who is unclean because of a person, that is, because of contact with a dead body. That's the implication here. This all comes from Leviticus 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And it says both male and female are to go out so that you will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. This is all ceremonial, of course, but this speaks of the fact that anything that relates to death and the loss of life is not acceptable near the throne of God because God is life. And so the people are to be put outside the boundaries of the camp. That doesn't mean that no one could have anything to do with them. Leprosy that's spoken of here is not modern leprosy. 
It was rather some form of uh, skin fungus from everything we can tell. It wasn't permanent. It doesn't seem to have been particularly disabling, but it was certainly unsightly, and it was like having a plague upon the skin of your body made you unclean or dirty. Dirt speaks of the curse. And so for these things, a person had to be put outside the camp and dwell until their problem was over with. The second thing that comes up is restitution in verses 5 to 10. We have in Leviticus a rule concerning restitution. If a person commits a transgression of the law and he has to make restitution, then he is to add one-fifth of it and give it to the person he has wronged. But if there is no one to give it to, then now we have an additional rule, the restitution must go to the priest besides the ram of the atonement by which atonement is made. And the restitution then is made to the priest if we don't have people to make it to. This again has to do with cleansing the camp, this time of moral impurity and not ceremonial one. The people have got to be holy and righteous before they can conquer the land. And now that the Levitical system has been set up, we can add this rule of giving it to the priests. Then we have the ritual of jealousy in chapter 5, 11 to 31. This is sometimes called the ordeal of jealousy, but it's not the same thing as an ordeal. An ordeal is a trial by pain and anguish, and if you're good enough, then you survive the pain and anguish. But that's not quite what goes on here. We have a whole series of rules that will probably take us too long to get too much into it. But basically it says in verses 12 and following, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man lies with her and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected though she defiled herself, there's no witness against her, she hasn't been caught in the act, and a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife because she's defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, then there are certain things he's supposed to do to test out to see if his wife is really guilty. He brings her to the priest, and he brings with her an offering of one-tenth of an ephah of barley. He doesn't put oil on it or incense on it, which was usually the case. But the oil refers to the Holy Spirit, incense refers to prayer, and in this case it's an offering that symbolizes a curse rather than a blessing, and so these things are not put on it. The priest brings the woman near and has her stand before the Lord. He takes holy water which is water that has the ashes of the heifer in it. We'll find out about that later in Numbers. And he takes some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and puts it in the water. The earthenware vessel is a symbol for the human body in the book of Leviticus. And the water and the dust in there probably has to do with the nature of man. And this is a symbol of the woman and of her humanity. Perhaps the dust speaks of the curse and the water speaks of life and maybe the mixture in the clay pot speaks of the possible mixture of these things inside the woman. It's hard to know for sure exactly what's in mind. Her hair is let loose, just as the leper's hair is let loose. And then the other rituals are given here. The priest warns her, puts a curse on her. She's going to drink this water. If she's guilty, then her abdomen will swell up and her thigh will waste away. And again, it's not quite clear what that means, but obviously something physically happened to the woman's stomach area that would make it obvious if she was guilty. And the woman says, so be it. 
Then the priest writes these curses on a scroll and washes them off into the water of bitterness. So the curses are written down and then blotted out and put into the water, and she drinks the water. If she's guilty, then, of course, her abdomen swells and she will become a curse among the people. But if she has not defiled herself and is clean, then she's free and she'll have children. She's vindicated. And this is the law of jealousy if a spirit of jealousy comes over a man. Well, in the Bible, we don't see any application of this except possibly the story of the woman taken in adultery when Jesus writes on the ground. Many have connected that up with the ritual of jealousy. But... Between a man and a woman, we don't find it. But between God and Israel, we do. God, whose name is Jealous, comes and tests his bride. And the symbolic meaning here is not so hard to find. We, as God's bride, drink the water of life, holy water. We partake of the dust of the tabernacle, so to speak. We take into our stomach the law of God, the curses and the blessings that are written on the scroll. And we drink all of these things. And in the Lord's Supper, we're told that if we drink it rightly, then we have life. But if we eat and drink the Lord's Supper wrongly, then for this cause many are sickly and many sleep. So a curse comes upon us. So there's a New Testament equivalent. The Lord's Supper is God's jealousy test for us. And we eat and drink the food that comes from his heavenly tabernacle, and it has this effect on us. Now God has already put this into practice with Israel once, and that was at Mount Sinai. The golden calf was ground up into powder and mixed with water, and the sons of Israel drank it. And then those who were guilty, there was a physical sign, and the Levites put them to death. Later on in the book of Numbers, we'll have another jealousy incident because the people will commit fornication at Baal Peor in chapter 25. And it will be a priest, Phineas, who brings it to a stop by putting to death the people who are committing this sin. But there is a basic principle here that God tests his people. There's no New Testament equivalent of this in terms of our civil or social relationships, but there is, you see, in the church. And we can expect the Lord's Supper to be our right of jealousy. Well, as I said, the primary meaning here is not so much with the man and his wife as it is with God and his army camp. And what this law meant was that Israel, as the bride of God, would be tested by him from time to time, If they were guilty, they would suffer. And if they were righteous, then they would be blessed. And we'll see this operating in the book of Numbers. God comes and tests his people, finds them guilty, finds that they've committed spiritual fornication, and then many of them die. And, of course, that happens more than once. That's how this fits in with the theme of the book of Numbers and with Israel as an army camp. Well, then, the fourth regulation for cleansing the camp is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. It's the law of the Nazarite. And again, we don't have time to go into detail here. I have a rather extended commentary on this passage, though not a complete one, in my commentary on the book of Numbers, because Samson was a Nazarite, and I deal with him there. The thing to notice here is the vow in verse 2, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he abstains from wine and strong drink. This is also a rule for the priests. He will drink no vinegar, anything made of wine or strong drink, nor any grape juice, or eat any fresh or dried grapes. He shall not eat anything produced by a grapevine from the seeds to the skin. Now, what this means is that during this time when he is a Nazarite, he is cut off 
from one of the special blessings of the Lord. And it signified to people in the Old Testament that they were not allowed to come near and relax and enjoy God's blessings in a full sense. The Nazarite is actually taking a vow to be a holy warrior. And that becomes clear as we notice the word head in this chapter. Verse 5, No razor shall pass on his head. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. Verse 9, If a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his head, then he shall shave his head. Verse 11, That day he shall consecrate his head. Verse 18, The Nazarite shall shave his dedicated head and will take the hair of his head and put it on the fire. Verse 19, After he has shaved his dedicated head. Now, what's all this talking about? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. We find the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And God's holy warriors were supposed to be expert head crushers. This is a major theme in the book of Judges, where the enemies of God are one after another crushed in the head. Sisera's head is crushed by a tent peg. Abimelech's head is crushed by a stone that falls from above. And then various political heads are crushed. And this is a theme that recurs throughout the Old Testament. We find in Judges chapter 5, the Song of Deborah, that all the men fighting in that battle took Nazarite vows and let their hair grow long, which was one of the parts of the rule, so that they could become head crushers. It seems that the way to become a good head crusher is to dedicate your head to the Lord. I think this refers ultimately to Jesus Christ, who is our head. We sometimes feel as we look out at the world that the enemy is better organized than we are, but Satan's head has been crushed. They have no head. They just have a lot of noise. Our head is alive. But the theme here in Numbers, again, is the people as warriors to the Lord, and when they go into a time of holy war, they would dedicate the hair on their head to God, and all the hair that grew during the time of holy war would be brought and sacrificed to him. Now, it wouldn't have to be holy war. It could be any other task that involves special concentration, that involves fasting from ordinary things. But particularly it was the holy war that involved the Nazarite vow. You might remember that when David had Uriah the Hittite come back, David said, go and sleep with your wife. And Uriah said, not at all. This is holy war. The ark is in the field and I can't go near my wife during that period. Again, it's the theme of special vow and dedication during the time of holy war. And that's a major theme, of course, in the book of Numbers. Well, the details here are way too many for us to look at in this overview. The final aspect of cleansing the camp is the blessing that Aaron pronounces. It's very familiar. It's used in most churches. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And in that way, God's name was put on the people of Israel, and God would bless them and give them life so that they might fight the battles of the Lord. In this way... The camp was kept clean. The Nazarites, the warriors, all the rules for what would happen if they became unclean, how to start the vow over again, the ritual of jealousy, what would happen if the Israelites themselves were unfaithful to God, how God would deal with them, what would happen if you committed a moral trespass and needed to make restitution, what would happen if you had a ceremonial mishap and had to be put outside the camp. In these ways, the camp was cleansed and the blessing would come upon them, and Aaron would put that blessing on them. Well now, we're ready to march, just about.
We are just about ready to march, but there's one other set of things that needs to be taken care of. We've got the camp cleansed, and now we simply have to establish some more details. It's not quite clear how everything fits here, but we have a few more details to establish Israel as a heavenly army and get them ready for the march. And that we find in chapter 7, 8, and 9. Very briefly then, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 11, we have the rules about the offerings. The elders or leaders of Israel were to make an offering to help furnish the altar and its utensils once the tabernacle was set up. Now chronologically we're dropping back a month. We're back to the first day of the first month of the year, the day that Moses finished setting up the tabernacle. And the events here in Numbers chapter 7 overlap the events of the book of Leviticus and your chronology shows you that. There were six carts, covered wagons, that were brought for the Gershonites and the Merarites to carry their implements with. The sons of Kohath, however, the reason this is put here, by the way, I think is twofold. This section here shows how the Levites would march with the army. Most of them would have their stuff in carts, except for the sons of Kohath. Verse 9, he didn't give any carts or covered wagons to the sons of Kohath because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. Remember, they had the furniture of the tabernacle. And they carried it on their shoulders. Now, later on in history that becomes important because in David's day they put the ark on a wagon and the wagon started to tip over and a man named Uzzah reached out to steady it and God struck him dead because he had no business touching it. And David realized then that they'd broken the law and when they brought the ark the rest of the way to Jerusalem, they carried it on their shoulders. What's important here, again, is this is angelic. God himself rides on the shoulders of the cherubim or on their wings, as the Bible puts it. And what corresponds to that is God's house being borne up on the shoulders of his people. It's an image that's found other places in the Bible. And again, it's the picture of the priests and indeed all the Israelites being like angelic figures engaged in a Star Trek as well as a Sand Trek across the desert. Then we have in verses 12 to 80 all these offerings. And the one thing I want to point out is that the very first thing listed in each case is the flour and oil of a grain offering that each of the 12 tribes gives. You can read this. It's complicated and to go into details again would be way beyond this survey. But in each case, the first offering mentioned is of a silver dish and a silver bowl, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. And there are 12 of these, of course, for the 12 political tribes. This has to do with establishing the table of showbread, the 12 loaves that are put there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And these are carried in the tabernacle by the priests. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, Aaron is told something about the lampstand. We wonder why this is here too. But this was around the 12th or 13th day of the month once this flower had all been given and the inside of the tabernacle is being set up. Aaron is told when he mounts the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in the front of the lampstand. That is, the light would shine over on the table of showbread. One of the things the lampstand represents is the sun. The holy place is a symbol of the firmament heavens. That's something that we discussed in our series called 
the garden of God. Here, if it represents the sun, then the twelve loaves represent Israel. And again, we have an image of a heavenly company here, lighted by the light of God. At any rate, that seems to be part of the idea. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, the lamp and the showbread are put together as well in reverse order. Chapter 24 of Leviticus, verses 1 to 4, talks about the oil that's used in the lampstand, keeping the lamps in order. And then verses 5 and following talk about the 12 loaves that are kept there on the table of showbread. So that's one of the reasons I think that these things are put together here. And exactly why, I'm not sure. But as you try to grip the book of Numbers, remember that we have the offerings primarily of grain, and then we have the placement of the lamp here. Then in the rest of chapter... We have the guardians of heaven, the Levites, and here we have the ritual for how they're cleansed. They're shaved all over, they wash their bodies, their body gets a new start in terms of growing hair, their clothes are washed, there are certain sacrifices that they have to bring, and then they're set apart, they're given to Aaron to help him. And that's all something of a summary of what we've seen before except at this point. They are ritually purified and set aside for their task. In verse 24, we have a verse that occasions some comment. This is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years and upward, they will enter to perform service and work on the tent of meeting. By the age of 50, they will retire from the service and not work anymore. Well, in chapter 4, we saw that they would have worked from the age 30 to 50. The Jews always understood the first five years as an apprenticeship. I would draw from that again a practical inference that no man should be a deacon in the church until he's 25, just as no man should be an elder until he's 30. All right, and then in chapter 9, there's one final thing that needs to be taken care of, and that is that it's time for Passover. They're going to celebrate Passover at Mount Sinai. They've been there a year, and then they're going to leave Mount Sinai. They had Passover in Egypt, and then they left. And now, remember our typological cycles here in the book of Numbers. They're going to have Passover at Sinai, and then they're going to leave. Problems come up, though, because in the interim, we have all these rules about cleanness and uncleanness, and it's Passover time, and some of the people are unclean. That wasn't a problem a year earlier, but now God has added all these laws in, and now people find they're unclean, something has happened. And so the question is, What about Passover we're supposed to celebrate it? And the answer is, you'll have a second Passover in the second month. If you're unclean for the first month, then you can celebrate the substitute Passover in the second month. And it also says, interestingly enough in verse 10, if you are on a distant journey, you can celebrate the Passover in the second month. Now, the only reason you'd be on a distant journey is because of trade you'd be on a trading caravan. You wouldn't be on vacation because Passover and unleavened bread were your vacation. So if you're on a business trip and you miss Passover, then you can celebrate it in the second month. Now, I draw an inference from that that if the church has got a lot of people in it who have to work on Sunday, then it's appropriate to set another day of the week aside as an alternative worship day. They had an alternative Passover for those who were engaged in work who are engaged in trade on a caravan journey. And similarly in our day, for people who work in hospitals or other works of necessity, 
or just because of our economy it no longer respects the Sabbath and if you have to get a job and the only place you can start is with a Sunday shift, then the church should make allowances for that in accordance with the law of God and have a substitute Passover meal, a substitute worship service for people who have to work on Sunday. You could have it on Monday or Saturday. Catholic Church, of course, does that routinely, has a Saturday Mass for those who work on Sunday. Protestants, unfortunately, have not shown the same degree of flexibility. Well, this constitutes Israel. We have got the warriors, including the Levites. We have got the camp cleansed. We have got apportionment of the tabernacle set up, showbread, the lamp. The Levites are in place, and now Passover is celebrated Everybody has been restored to fullness of fellowship with God, and now it's time to move out. And in our next tape, we will look at the moving out following the cloud from Mount Sinai. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.